Our preaching passage today is Nehemiah chapter 1. This morning is our first in the series of Nehemiah, and so we'll begin in Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O God, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them. And bring them to the place that I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, we start uh, this morning a new series in the book of Nehemiah. And it's a, it's a fantastic story, one that perhaps is familiar to Uh, to many of us, but as we get into this story, the theme I'm going to want to be uh, bringing out is the theme of rebuild. And uh, Nehemiah, I believe, is written to remind us, remember is one of the key words of Nehemiah, it's written to remind us of the story of how God's people were sent into exile, brought back, and then how they rebuilt. And we're meant to learn spiritual lessons about the right way to rebuild. And of course, as we Uh, go through this season of life as a church and in the world at large, we need to think through how biblically to rebuild. And that's the reason why I chose Nehemiah, so that I myself might look at that and learn more about how biblically to lead us in rebuilding, but so we as a church can think biblically together from God's word about how to rebuild. Well, like all good stories, um, it begins with a problem. And uh, the problem is identified in the first uh, three Uh, verses. So here they are. He says, the words 
of uh, Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible is part of a two-volume um, connected work. They run together. Ezra and Nehemiah are part of the same book in the, in the Hebrew Bible. And that's because it is thought that Ezra, the scribe, who came back to Israel to lead God's people by teaching the Bible. Ezra, who uh, is described as someone who not only knew God's word, um, but taught God's word and did God's word, which is a fantastic description of what Christians are meant to be like and a fantastic description of what pastors and Bible teachers and theologians are meant to be like. Not only to know God's word, well, that's important, of course, but also to teach God's word. And then to live God's word too. That's the kind of man Ezra uh, was and uh, the kind of people we're to be. And Ezra, it is thought, um, put together the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, perhaps even also First and Second Chronicles with a story of how God's people went into exile and then were brought back from exile and then rebuilt. At any rate, um, Nehemiah has in it though Parts that are Nehemiah's words, his first-hand description. And this is one of these parts, even though not all of Nehemiah are his direct description, but this part is. So these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and here's the situation. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. Uh, Chislev in the, in the Jewish calendar was um, November, December. So it's it's winter. In the 20th year, and that's put there to place this in the story arc where God's people go into exile according to the the, the promise that God gave through Jeremiah. 70 years later, they came back from exile. They then, the remnant, rebuilt the temple. And then about 50 years later, Ezra came to who knew God's word, taught God's word, lived God's word. And then about 13 years after that, Nehemiah, as we'll see, comes to Jerusalem. And this, this description in the 20th year of King Artaxes puts it in that timeline, so we know when this is happening. As I was, this is all verse 1, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Now the Persian Empire, which is the dominant global superpower at the time, The Persian Empire had uh, various capital cities, various royal residences. And Susa, about 200 miles east of the Tigris River, was one of those capital cities. Uh, But Susa was the winter residence of the royal household. It was the winter capital city. So they were in Florida. And who would blame them? That Hanani, so here's, okay, so that's where they are. Here's what happens. That Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So there they are. It's a family get-together with his, him and his brother, with some other friends, and they've come from Judah. Now, Judah to Susa <laughs> was a long journey. It's over 1,800 miles in our day, 1,800 miles, you get on a plane and it doesn't take too long. But in those days, it's roughly speaking about a four and a half month journey. 
Have that in your mind. This has been a long journey. The remnant have gone back. There was some to and fro coming and going between the Persian capital cities and Judah now. And four and a half months journey, Nehemiah is with his brother and their friends. And they've gathered. And what do they talk about? Here's what Nehemiah wants to know. And I asked them, Concerning the Jews who escaped, that's the, um, the Jewish people who were left in Israel after the time of the Babylonian captivity, but they were left there and they escaped, they, they survived. And those who had survived the exile, that is those who had survived by going into exile, and then their families had come back afterwards, the remnant had come back, and concerning Jerusalem. So what's the topic of conversation? Does this family get together with friends? Hasn't seen his brother for ages. Four and a half months journey. What do they talk about? Football? Politics? I think it was uh, G.K. Chesterton who said that uh, when a society talks about nothing but politics... It's like when a, a man talks about nothing but his indigestion. It's a sign of ill health. And how what he talked about was the work of God. How's it going? How's the city of God? How are God's people doing? That's what we're meant to talk about. How's it going in Africa? How's the gospel going in China? What's happening in that Bible study? That friend you told me about who's on the verge of becoming a Christian, has he actually come to the Lord or do I need to keep praying to that end? How's the work of God? And they said to me, verse 3, so here's the problem. I told you that all stories begin with a problem or lots of good stories begin with a problem, identifying the, the problem and here it is. This is the problem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province, so now uh, Israel is just one part of the Persian Empire. It's the province. It's called beyond the Euphrates because from a Persian point of view, they're on the other side of the Euphrates. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Well, why? Here's why. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Well, of course, that doesn't sound good to us, but it was a particularly significant problem for them because in this province, part of the Persian Empire, Jerusalem is no longer the capital. Samaria is the capital. And Samaria was run along Persian lines, run non-biblically defined ideology, the pagans who worshipped other gods were not in favor of what God was doing through the rebuilding of the temple, the restoration of God's work. And Jerusalem was in great trouble and shame because its walls were still destroyed. It was vulnerable. A city is only, as, in the ancient times, is only as strong as its walls. They are in great trouble. And shame, because it's the city of God. So that's the problem. 
I wonder what you think is the problem that you're facing. Political, economic. Fundamentally, our problem is always spiritual. It's Augustine who said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. There's so much restlessness now. Why? Because we need to find our rest in God. So having identified the problem, we would think that he would immediately in the story jump to the solution. But there's a step between that I've called start with prayer and here is the prayer. And the prayer is the rest of the, the, the chapter we're looking at this morning. But there's one bit at the end that is particularly dramatic in addition to the prayer as, as I'll show you, I hope to show you in just a moment. So here's the prayer. So the problem doesn't jump straight to the solution. He starts with prayer. And the prayer begins in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I want you to notice this. There's great intensity to prayer. I don't know what you think about prayer. Saying a prayer. Look at the intensity here. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying. This is a hugely intense prayer season. There is a place for Christians to fast as well as pray. Fasting, going without food for a season, for a meal, for a day, maybe you you should take it under medical advice. Fast if you, some people medically should not fast from food, but you can fast from internet access or something else. But fasting is a way of saying to God, not only with the the words of your mouth, but with your physical being too. Oh God, I'm taking this seriously. Oh Lord, hear me. And he's, He's fasting and praying. Of course, when you fast, it also gives you more time to pray. It's amazing how much time is taken up simply by making food, eating food, doing the dishes. You just have so much more time when you don't eat. There's great intensity to this prayer. And the prayer is powerful and effective. And there's so many different parts to this prayer. The more you get into it, I just commend it to you as a study for how to pray. It's one of the great prayers in the Bible. There's so many parts to it, and I can't, in the time we have, pull out all of those. Well, what I want to do is, it's a, it's a prayer of great power, like a cord that is pulling down blessing from heaven. And in that cord, there are some strands that I want to show you that make it particularly powerful. And the first strand is uh, around the word before. So he says, verse 4, Fasting, I continue fasting and praying before uh, the God of heaven. But then he also says, uh, verse 6, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel. And then at the end he says, grant him mercy, uh, talking about himself, grant him mercy in the sight of or literally before this man. Now here's the thing. When you pray before God, facing God, toward God, It changes how you look at everything else. 
before you, O Lord, before you, O Lord. And now give me mercy before this man. Who is this man? Oh, merely King Artaxerxes, who is simply the greatest, most powerful man on the face of the planet. But now having prayed before God, King Artaxerxes is just this guy, this man. I don't know what you fear, what person you fear, what results that might happen that you fear, what virus you fear. Before God. And now whatever that is, it's just this guy becomes small in the sight of God. That's one thread. Another thread he prays here is, O Lord God of heaven. He's praying before the God of heaven. He says, O Lord uh, God of heaven. And then he says, though you're, this is now verse 9, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. Heaven here is used as in the heavens, the stars, the galaxy, the universe. What he's saying is this way of describing God as the God of heaven is used in the Old Testament, particularly when we're talking about God in international contexts. And of course, he's in Persia, away from Israel. It's used sometimes in Genesis before they enter the promised land. And then it's used often in First and Second Chronicles when probably Ezra is weaving together this story of how God brings back his people from the outermost parts of the heaven, that is the world underneath the heavens, not just in Israel. And it's used a lot in Nehemiah. The Lord God of the heavens, of the universe. And what that means is, though God's people have been scattered, God is still God. He's the God of the universe, wherever you are. Because that makes it a powerful prayer. And then, having done the majestic, he comes down to the personal, the covenant, the relational. And so he says, verse 5, he's talking to the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and, and uh, steadfast uh, love. And then verse 9, but if you return to me and keep my commandments, for we have not kept the commandments, verse 7. So here what Nehemiah is doing is he's before God, and this prayer is a summary, of, of course, of the prayers he prayed day and night. It's a summary of the prayers to give us an indication of the kind of prayer that he was praying. He's saying, God is a God of covenant. God is faithful to his covenant. He keeps his covenant, but there's a problem. We have not kept his covenant. Ah, but God has also said that if we return to his covenant, he will return to us. And of course, that's the gospel, isn't it? You and I, we are covenant breakers. But if we come back to God, there's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is opened if, and you may go in. Calvary's cross is where it begins when you come as a, as a sinner to Jesus. And so he, he confesses his sins, but he knows that in the covenant of God there is a way back. 
the, the, the prayer. So there's that thread in the prayer too, this powerful prayer. And then it's framed by an appeal for God to listen. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive. And then verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive at the beginning and the end of the prayer. Of course, God hears everything. He's omniscient. He knows and hears everything. But on the basis of this covenant, he's saying, Lord, please, will you listen? Will you turn your blessing to us? Will you give us a special attention right now? Oh, Lord, hear. But then most powerful of all, and finally, this final part of the thread here that I want to bring out for us this morning, which is just to show you how the prayer is structured, is uh, around the word servant. So verse 6, he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. And then he says, uh, but uh, the rules, we've not kept the rules that you commanded your servant, Moses. So remember the word that you commanded your servant, Moses. And then verse 10, they are your servants. And then listen, Lord, to the prayer of your servant, verse 11, and to the prayer of your servants and give success to your servant today. He's emphasizing in, a, in, a, in an increasing crescendo, servant, 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 servant. Why? Because Nehemiah is not just saying a prayer. He's he's. He's, he's coming between the Lord, holy God, who keeps his covenant before the God of heaven. Oh, Lord, be attentive. Lord, I'm your servant. They are your servants. We're praying together with his brother and his friends. And he's coming between, and on, on their behalf, of those for whom he's pleading, oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on them on the behalf of your servant Moses, on the behalf of your servant Nehemiah, on the behalf of your servant. Does it remind you of someone? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And he stands interceding for us. That's what it means when we pray in Jesus' name. What we're praying is, oh, Lord God, on behalf of the, capital T, servant, capital S, the greater than Moses, the greater than Nehemiah, the greater than these servants, on behalf of the, capital T, servant, capital S, who died for us and who through faith and repentance covers our sins, on behalf of Christ, in Jesus' name, that's what that phrase means. In his name, because of what he did. Oh, Lord, hear. It's such a powerful prayer to pray these days, isn't it? Oh, Lord God, would you rebuild your work? Oh, Lord God, would you restore your people? Oh, Lord God, would you bring revival on this world? Oh, Lord God, on the basis of our plea as your servants, but far more than that, in Jesus' name, the servant, will you listen? And so he prays, and it's a powerful prayer. There's a problem. He doesn't jump straight to the solution. He starts with prayer, but he doesn't end 
there. He doesn't just pray. He does something too, and it's indicated. So there's not only the problem here, not only the prayer, there's also the opportunity. And that's right at the end of this chapter. He simply says this. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. There's an opportunity. It's so important to be practical, isn't it, as Christians? Jesus says that uh, we are to be as innocent as doves, but also as canny as snakes. Uh, Just prudent, practical. And here Nehemiah has an opportunity that as he prays, as he works through the prayer, becomes increasingly obvious to him that he has an opportunity to do something. So often the case, isn't it, when we come before God and say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, will you help? Lord, will you do something? And the answer to the prayer is partly through us doing something. Now I was cut bearer to the king. Very practical. We're going to see how he makes the most of that opportunity. But here's the opportunity before him. It's going to be very, very practical. You know, uh, in, in English history, there's a, a character that you may know of called Oliver Cromwell. And Oliver Cromwell, who was a bit of a mixed bag in many ways, uh, um, but was a Puritan by his uh, profession of faith and a Christian, he led a rebellion against the king at the time. The king was killed in the end, and Oliver Cromwell set up a republic uh, in the 17th century. And Oliver Cromwell um, had various aphorism phrases that were attributed to him. And one was related to his army that he formed. He was a general as well. He formed this army called the New Model Army. And in those days, guns were um, uh, used gunpowder that had to be um, put into the end of the gun and then uh, squeezed down and then the bullet afterwards and, 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 and gunpowder and little pouches that you, you carry in little containers you carried around with you. The powder, and it was called simply powder for short, the gunpowder. And gunpowder had to be kept dry, couldn't get wet, otherwise it wouldn't, be, wouldn't work. And of course that was a particular challenge in England where it could rain on occasions, you know. And uh, so one phrase that's attributed to Oliver Cromwell about this practicality is he would say to his troops, this Puritan Christian leader, he would say to his troops, trust in God and keep your powder dry. Oh, pray. Seize the opportunity. I have a friend who, when he's uh, giving advice, particularly to students, as they're trying to think through what to do with their lives, uh, says to them they need to answer this question. With the person that God has made you, 
and the gifts that God has given you, what can you do most to advance the kingdom of God? It's a great question. Of course, not just for students. With the person that God has made you, with the gifts that God has given you, what can you do most to advance the kingdom of God? Nehemiah, he was cupbearer to the king. That was his opportunity. No one else was. He could go right into the, the, the presence of the most powerful man on the face of the planet, and he had an opportunity. What about you? Mums. Dads. Businessmen. Businesswomen. Lawyers. Doctors. High school teachers. Um, uh, last week, um, after this service, when I was outside, I specifically, uh, you know, I always try to stay around and talk to people, but I uh, specifically stayed around and invited people to come up and talk with me about spiritual matters on their mind and have what I called then a surgery, and I defined that last week as just an opportunity to specifically ask something um, spiritual, and, uh, and we talked about it and prayed about it, and there was a line of people doing that, and I'm going to do the same again this week. Not going to be outside because it's raining. Practical. But it's going to be back out here. There's a tent out here where we've been having our student service. And I said this at the 9.30 and the 10.15 there. That I'll be back there after this service. And you can come and talk to me about something spiritual in my mind. But perhaps particularly with this question on your mind. The person God has made me, the person God has made you, the gifts God has given you, what can you most do to advance the kingdom of God? Because we all have an opportunity, don't we? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for Nehemiah and uh, what an amazing leader he was. And we, th- we pray, Lord, that we would learn uh, from his example and from this book how to spiritually rebuild. We thank you, Lord, for this extraordinary prayer uh, with which he begins the book. And, Lord, we uh, pray, Lord, that you teach us more how to pray from this example as, as well as the other examples in the Bible. Uh, Father, we do confess our sins before you, as did Nehemiah. We have sinned against you. I have sinned against you. We are sinners. But we pray, Lord, that according to the promise of Moses and in the name of Jesus, that as we come to you, you will forgive our sins, restore us, and rebuild us, renew us, and revive us. And we pray specifically, Lord, that you would help us to make the most of the opportunity you've given us, the life you've given us, uh, the neighbors you've given us, the friends you've given us, the gifts you've given us. You'd help us to make the most of the opportunity you've given us to advance your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.